Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. Welcome to a very different episode where we talk about social media and women's basketball. Joining me and co-host Jacinta Govind is Swinburne Research Fellow and Siren Sport co-founder Dr Casey Simons, along with veteran sports journalist for The Age, Roy Ward, for a fascinating discussion about the impact of social media on women's hoops and women in sports. We explore the benefits, but we also get real with the challenges and downsides that come with them. It's a complex topic, but it was a real honour to have these great advocates for women's sports sharing their thoughts with us. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today we are having a special episode where we're talking about social media. Joining us is my co-host Jacinta Govind. Along with Jacinta, we've got Dr. Casey Simons, who's a research fellow in the Sports Innovation Research Group at Swinburne University, a co-founder of Siren Sport and a Melbourne Press Club Quill finalist for the Women in Sports category. We've also got Roy Ward, sports journalist who covers basketball and AFL football with The Age, as well as other areas of national importance. Thank you all for joining us on the show today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so look, today we're going to be talking about social media, and there's a lot of terrain to talk about. I think, you know, first of all, I'd like to start off by just talking about the ability that social media has delivered to women's sports and women's basketball to create movements and involvement with the fan base. So, for example, WNBA, they've had a lot of positive input into social movements since the Black Lives Matters. Also, locally, we've had Liz Cambridge and Ezzie McBegger taking up the cause of Rise Up. Also, Kayla George has gotten involved with other Indigenous communities. What do you see as the big key areas that social media can deliver for women's sport, women's basketball specifically, but also the wider women's sports? Casey, your opinion on that? Yeah, thanks. I think it goes back to when we think about the formation, really, about a lot of women's sports in general and thinking about spaces. So a lot of women's sports were born out of being excluded from spaces. So we're sort of talking about physical spaces there. So they've gone and carved their own spaces. They've gone and found their own courts to play. They've gone to find their own fields to kick the footy around. And that's how we sort of see a lot of these modern leagues take place. I think we see that really echoed in the social media space. Like it's another space that's been carved out by people who wanted to find an alternative space to create something. And I guess we're talking there from, you know, a tech giant point of view where they've tried to disrupt, you know, a media space um, and create something new. And we see this intersection, in my opinion, of women's sports coming in and being able to find a new space to occupy that's kind of outside of the mainstream and outside of the margins. And we'll get stuck into it later, I'm sure, about some of the negatives of that. But what we see is, you know, 
women who have been excluded have been able to come into a new space and find their people again, but in a digital way and been able to thrive and connect in a new way that hasn't really been done before. And we've seen that escalate over the last few years in some really positive ways, like you mentioned there, Paul, in being able to drive social change, drive you know what's important to them, reach new audiences, connect one-on-one with fans. And that is some really great potential to, you know, really drive some really important messages, really drive some new achievements in the terms of women's sports audience and growth and create a space where people do feel safe um, and able to connect with people and speak their mind. Yes, it has some drawbacks, but I think that's where I see the amazing potential of the social media space for women's sport is because it does have that sort of outside of the margins alternative space to it where people would be able to find their people and connect in a much more powerful way. Roy, General O'Hay started off a key initiative on mental health. Now, I know you've interviewed Jenna on a number of occasions. How did you see the way she reacted to the response from social media in terms of that initiative? Because I know you spoke with her on a couple of occasions in relation to that. Yeah, look, those sort of situations bring out some of the better sides of social media. They let you see the way a community can get around a person or a cause. You know, you can learn a lot more. I think a lot of us got to see that Jenna is one of the best captains in Australian sport, male, female or whatever, because of her ability to go out in front on something that was such a personal issue. Her uncle had taken his own life and she'd wanted to follow on from that with some positives and build some funding for Lifeline and some of those type groups. So to see the way she could do that and to use social media to help promote that as well as regular media like myself, I think that was a great sign. And I really um, yeah, strongly endorse what Casey was saying there about how we have um, the social media lets everyone find each other and lets them find their groups. I wouldn't be familiar with her work if it wasn't for social media. I wouldn't be familiar with a lot of the people around the WNBL, particularly the new people who come into the league, unless you had that sort of imprint from their time online. So there are some really great things. There's some great abilities for the players to promote themselves beyond the ways they could in the past and the things they care about by using that space. So Jacinta, from your point of view, you know quite a number of players from across the WNBL. How have you seen the evolution of social media across that period of time and the way that the the players and the people that you know in amongst the teams have been engaging with social media? I would say that mostly, just generally speaking, I think a lot of it would be um, a lot of self-promotion, not in a bad way, a lot of self-promotion in a sense of the type of athlete they are but also the type of person that they are and just kind of going off what Casey and Roy touched on where Social media allows a lot of female athletes to show that other side of them, like when they're off the court, off the field, um, off a cricket pitch, showing that complexity or that other involvement in social issues or things that they really care about. And I think as a fan, that other dimension of your on your favourite athlete sometimes makes them a bit more accessible and a bit more relatable. Um, but I've also seen the self-promotion in a sense of like lots of sponsorship which I really like because even as a fan or as a consumer, if I'm someone who's playing, you know, down the road and I want to be the best person at my domestic comp, 
and I see my favourite athlete is endorsing a particular product or a particular type of recovery tool, then that's going to make me go, you know what, I still want to play like that person. So I'm going to check out what that thing is. And then in the meantime, I'm hoping that the sponsorship posts are also supplementing some of the, um, the pay gaps that a lot of female athletes experience too. So it gives them an opportunity as a bit of a, a, a compensation, I guess. That brings up an interesting point about gender equality. To me, social media has allowed women's sports particularly to be able to narrow the gap to the men's sports who tend to have a significantly higher profile in the more traditional non-digital media than women's sports do. Now, it is changing, but do you think that the ability to be able to access digital media so easily and be able to get your message out has helped to shorten the time frame it's taking to be able to raise the profile of these sports? Mm. Casey? It's an interesting one. Yes and no. I think we are seeing a lot of positive change in the coverage overall, but we're also not really. <laughs> we're seeing more and more, but we're also seeing more and more men's coverage because of these digital platforms. So when you think about how much we're seeing, it still sort of hovers around the just under 10% on average, which is the same as it's been for about 30 years historically for women's sports media coverage, but it's just the media space has grown so much. So we are seeing more, but in comparison, we're not seeing a whole lot more, but I think you're right in what we're seeing in athletes sort of owning their story a little bit. Um, So sort of touching on what Jacinta was saying is that we're seeing a lot of these women take control of their platforms and own their story a bit more than perhaps uh, the male athletes because they have so much more access to, to mainstream media to cover their story or they have a bit more, I guess, sort of more obligations with their teams and their media contracts and the coverage anyway which women don't really have. So they're telling their stories in a more authentic way. And I think that also comes across because the, there's still a bit of a distrust from a female athlete point of view with mainstream media. And I think there are a few great people in the mainstream, people like Roy, who've built you know, a great sense of trust with their athletes and are telling their story in the way that it wants to be told. But there are a lot of outlets out there that when they do want to tick the, well, we're covering women's sports box this week, they'll tell a story or they'll do an interview in a way that doesn't really serve the athlete's story quite condescending, uses a lot of gendered language. So I think athletes are starting to get really savvy to that, you know, both men and women. But I think particularly for women who don't have so many opportunities in the media, they're using their own social media platforms so their message isn't misconstrued. You know, journalists who are being opportunistic aren't able to do that with them because they've got their own voice on their own platform telling their own story. And Roy, how do you see that? Yeah, they can also use that voice to call it out when there's something they don't like. And I've had that a few times with players who didn't like something I wrote or thought I'd missed something or I'd made a factual error. I left someone who was top scorer out of a game report once and she sent me a little DM saying, Oi, what did I do to you? <laughs> um, so, And I love that because at least people are coming up to me and telling me so we can fix it. But I think at least they are taking agency of their own, as Casey said, their own sort of voice. I really love it shows who are the hustlers out there and who are the ones who are putting the work in to build a brand. Like I see some of the things someone like Sarah Blitzarves does, you know, in terms of getting extra sponsors, showing some different things that she's interested in. I see Maddie Garrick's doing some really great stuff. She, I really hope she's making some good money from the high quality stuff she's sort of doing. And there's a host of others. I, I love that because it shows that there's a level of agency they have off their own bat. You know, it's not the number one pick in the AFL draft who has two advisors, a manager and a, you know, 
a media agent. It's, you know, it's someone who's doing their own thing. Um, Casey's spot on about how the growth of media hasn't actually seen a, a greater level of coverage. It's just, you know, there's more outlets. And one thing I really worry about with the WNBL and with women's sport is having a bit of an echo chamber, having the same people following the same sport through the same smaller outlets or the same couple of, you know, reporters or a couple of outlets. And then you, you're having not much growth. You're just talking to the same people in the say, at the same time. That whole point about the, the, the bubble was really interesting because I tend to agree with you on that, but do you see that social media gives an opportunity for not only the the players, but also the clubs and the league itself to try and engage with a wider audience, given the fact that the WNBL just doesn't seem to be getting picked up by major media to a significant level? And having that access to social media, be able to address directly to the fan base, gives them the potential to be able to grow? It does give them a potential to grow, but the question is always, are you reaching the audience you don't already have? You know, you don't need to do much to convince any of us here to uh, go and get involved in WNBL or something because we're already following it, aren't we? But, you know, if I was to go to Squid and say, hey, let's go let's go watch a women's WBBL match, you know, it might be a different sell because, you know, maybe both of us aren't following it as closely. I think how do you reach those people? Are you reaching people outside of your tent is always the question you should be asking. And mm. I think the thing we mentioned brands before, and that's what I'm really happy to see a lot of the athletes or the high profile ones start building connections with brands and connections overseas. You know, we see our WNBL side start having WNBA imports. And so we bring in their fans and some of their followers. All that is really good in terms of building that tent and building that bubble. But the trick is always, can you reach the audience who's not seeing you? That's, that's always the battle in this. So writing some notes in preparation for today, something that I wrote down is that women, we can be our own double-edged sword. So we can be the very first point of call to bring ourselves down and each other down. But we can also, you know, when we're strength in numbers, we can be even stronger than the rest of the, the sporting world out there. And for me, something that I'm trying to focus on in social media particularly is highlighting when women are supporting other women. So do you think that maybe, like you said, um, to help prevent create an echo chamber in particular with a WNBL or any other female sporting league, should we be targeting more women to come to watch other women? Well, I think the WNBA has shown that that's a good way to grow audiences and same as getting families, you know, to come along because I think a lot of, I know the Melbourne Boomers did some great work and other clubs have followed in terms of working with local clubs saying, here's some memberships, come follow I think that sort of model is the way to go and encouraging within that the sort of women to get behind women. I think like all things, it's however you can do it. You know, you, you should just be reaching as far as you can go. Again, I think a lot of people really love the crossover marketing where you see someone who's friends with another athlete in, you know, in the AFLW or whatever, they do something together or do a post together or those things are all good too. But I think people also, some sports get scared of that crossover marketing, like, oh, what if our fans go and see that's better? Or what if we, we lose that athlete next year to AFLW? Oh, then it looks like we're giving away our people. And again, that's sort of, that's a double-edged sword as well, Squin. It's more the commercial end of it that, you know, are we too scared of something to try something that might that we haven't done before? So, Casey, mm-hmm. what, what do you think about that? Because yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. Yeah, and it's something that, um, I mean, I 
you sort of investigated a lot in my um in my thesis that I did with my PhD looking at the relationship women have with other women and that's a you know a real function of the patriarchy is to alienate women and to drive competition between women because there's only one seat at the table and if a woman's going to succeed it's only going to be one woman there's not more opportunities so that drives competition in women and you start to look at women as your enemy rather than your support system. And that's been, you know, in effect for a really long time. And we're starting to see a lot of work being done to undo that and a lot of women coming together and trying to unpack that within themselves about why they've been jealous of other women or competitive with other women and realising that, you know, like just said, we are stronger together um, and we can achieve so much more when we do band together. And I think I've seen a lot of that change, um, particularly in social media, bringing it back to that space over the last five or so years where these alternative media spaces have popped up. So independent podcasts and blogs and sports websites. And, you know, we were able to create Siren Sport from that by being in that space and everyone realising that it doesn't matter if you know, one podcast is able to interview one WNBL player and the other podcast didn't get it. Like, it doesn't matter that happens because you can do more it's not about doing the one thing it's about doing more and more and more and supporting everyone and getting more stuff into that space together so what I've seen in the last few years is a real approach from women um, who are working in the alternative media space is just to support each other and share everyone's content and not be competitive about getting that interview or getting that story it's better if we're all support together and then we can all help each other So I think that's interesting um, to see that starting to change. And when it comes to the fan engagement space, I think that's an interesting look at it. Um, That's not something I really see, but I think that's probably more from an athlete point of view, and I'm certainly no athlete. But I think in terms of fan engagement and trying to drive that growth, what I see sometimes with uh, leagues and clubs that I think is a mistake is looking really outside their core audience too much and what I mean by that is of course you want growth and of course you want to attract new fans but you don't want to do a disservice to the fans that you know are in that quote-unquote echo chamber they're your core fans they've been there from the start they're hugely invested and they're your brand ambassadors so sometimes I think what we see is when we try to drive you know junior participation or we try to drive um, elite pathways and build those programs which are amazing and we want to see more elite performance we want to see more young girls take up more of a range of women's sports and hopefully get to the stage where they can be professional and have that as a legitimate career pathway you start to see that reflected in advertising which targets little girls which is good but it excludes perhaps you know the fans in the stands that are in there 50s that have followed the WNBL since its inception you know it's our longest running women's league in Australia so tapping into your core audience who's already there looking after them really buying into their support I think is a really great way of encouraging them to be the ambassador and go to drive that audience for you because you don't have better spokespeople from the people who have been there and who love the sport purely for what it is and what it's done for them over the last few years of their lives. To that point, I agree with the the fact that you do want to try and reach out to your core audience. But one of the things that I find interesting about basketball is it has got a very high participation rate, but seems to have a lower engagement rate. So there seems to be a bit of a mismatch where you've got your social media, you can reach these people, but for some reason they don't seem to be engaging with the WNBL in this specifically. The big question is why? 
I mean, they're, they're obviously fans. They play, they go out there, they referee, or they're involved somehow. But for whatever reason, they don't seem to be engaging, whether it be through traditional or social media. How do you outreach to them? It's a big question. I think you really need to do some, I mean, putting my research hat on, you do some market analysis. And um, I think it just comes back to asking the fans what they want. Um, I don't think you can assume, and I think, putting in you know programs and advertising campaigns to just be visible is not really how things work anymore you've got to be much more nuanced and much more you know talking to your consumer directly and that's what social media is really great for so i know the WNBL and a lot of their teams do a really great job on social media really active engaging putting up a lot of stories and doing a lot of work with much limited resources i can imagine which is always part of the problem too but I think there's definitely more potential there to to figure out who the core audience is and what they want on their terms. And that just takes a lot of work. And it's really challenging as well because there isn't just one answer. There isn't one type of fan. There are many types of fans. And I think that's in my space of looking at fan engagement and sort of that consumer level, it's understanding the nuances of all of your fans and what they each individually want you can't like market to fans as a homogenous group anymore everyone has individual needs and it takes a lot of work to unpack that so unfortunately there's not an easy answer in my opinion Roy the NBL did a lot of work when Larry Kesterman came in and once they'd stabilized the league they did a lot of work on this question and you know what they didn't find all the answers, <laughs> even with all the work they still have. <laughs> and that issue, the thing that Casey brought up about taking care of your fans, your rusted on fans, they actually found a, a bit of trouble with that and with trying to grow because when they were reaching out to, say, family groups with a couple of eight or 10-year-old kids and a mum and dad who weren't that interested in the game, they found that having lights and loud music and lots of entertainment and you know the smoke cannons and whatever else was appealing to that audience. But if you went to the rusted on types like me, I wouldn't care if they didn't play anything and I could just hear the squeaking of the shoes. But, you know, they need to get both. And I'm still going to turn up if the music's blaring. I'm not going to like it, but I'm still going to be there. So I think this is the sort of issue they came down to. But then when you look at that from the other side of the coin as the rusted on fan, you get on Twitter saying, Larry, turn the music down. You know, it's a really difficult area. And the point of nuance is really well made from Casey that you've got to have lots of different offerings, lots of different targeting. Another one the NBL found was their owners and their uh, higher-end people were actually of interest to a lot of people who want to network with them. So that's why you'll see lots of corporate stuff at the Kings, at Melbourne United, every club, because the guys who are owners, people who want to get in, get in with them, make business deals, want to get in and work with them or go and join them for a beer. So there's a bit of that. There's the families, there's the blokes like me up in the stand, happy to pay 15 bucks for the worst seat. There's a whole lot of different people, but you've got to try and reach them all in their own way. And that's the same with membership packages too. So how they, they've done that with a lot of investment, WNBL clubs with smaller stadiums, smaller numbers of, you know, frontline everyday staff, it's a lot more difficult a task. And, you know, trying to play loud music that's not too loud in a creaky old stadium is difficult too. So... You know, there's there's all kinds of, it's a much harder question than just how do we get someone through the door. Yeah, and I think on that too, I think what I see, and I've seen this a little bit with the start of the AFLW competition is 
you know, not to make too much of the comparison with the WNBL because I know it's a completely different beast, but just trying to mimic, you know, the men's counterpart across to the women's space, you know, rarely works. And I think it's such a different fan space because you'll have an array of fans that, you know, range from your rusted on supporter who supported that one team from day dot does not care about any other team in the competition is just there to support their team you'll have the parents of kids who are playing the game you'll have you know basketball supporters who are just there for basketball but there's also a lot of different other fan buckets that are there when it comes to women's sports which are just fans of women's sports and women who do want to support women who don't really want to pick a team and want to have a membership of a team, but they want to give some sort of financial contribution to support women because they understand all the challenges that exist there for women in terms of pay parity and resources and access to equipment and all of that. So there's a lot of audience growth potential there, but I think we haven't quite really got to the point where we understand what the fan space looks like really for fans of women's sports, because I think it goes into a far more complex area than what we've seen in the men's sporting space. Yeah, because I feel like we're kind of saying if you want to reach a fan base you kind of, or you want to put on, uh, you know, a sporting spectacle, it has to satisfy the needs of nearly everyone that you want to go. You've got to be the ultimate people pleaser. And I think if you want to be really clever to particularly target a more uh, female-based audience, especially for female-based sports, you almost have to target more female-based initiatives almost. Um, So me being a coach player fan sometimes drives me the wrong way when particular sporting clubs, whether it was either my own or when I'd watch my niece go and play soccer and they'd have a women's day. And I know the idea behind it was, I don't know, celebrating women, which is fine, but it's like, isn't that something we should be doing all the time? Why do we need a particular day? I would probably prefer if the day was dedicated to like a women's-based charity or um, even just a charity in general where the point was to unite more people to bring awareness to a club. I don't know, you can hook me in that way. But also the difference for me between men and women's basketball in particular with fans is that I've noticed because of social media, especially in the last few months with the Olympics, and more on Twitter that there's basketball fans and there's NBA fans. And to me, that's a two different level <laughs> kettle of fish. And NBA, someone said to me, NBA is like junk food. And I was like, that's a really great way to describe it. Um, and it's like, do yeah, so that's almost a whole other fan level again. And then, you know, you, you both mentioned like getting in the families and the traditional basketball fans who just are there just because they like the sport. And me, when I'm coaching young girls in an elite program and me going through an elite program myself growing up, the one thing that I think gave me sometimes an edge over other people was that I used to watch so many games. I used to go to the local uh, semi-professional games. I had an awesome mum who always used to take me to the Flames games and park next to Annie Lafleur's car, which just used to like give me the greatest sense of joy of going to a game. Um, but watching games was such a good thing for my skill development. So when I say to the kids that I'm coaching, hey, when you go home, I want you to look at how Charlotte Hill comes off a screen X, Y, Z. And they're like, who's Charlotte Hill? And I go, are you not watching any games? You don't know who the current professional women's players are. You don't watch any WNBL. And it's like, do your parents take you to games? Do you watch your games? And it's just like this complete disconnect once they leave the basketball stadium. And that 
that is the biggest mind boggle for me. Yeah, and that, that kind of comes back to that point I was trying to make, which is social media to me seems like the tool to be able to try and engage with these people that are playing but basically shut off the sport the moment they walk off the court. A few months ago, we came across some um, couple of instances actually of parents whose kids were training with my daughter and they didn't know the WNBL existed. They didn't know that the Flames existed as a team. That's telling me that for some reason, even though their kids are playing basketball and they're obviously interested in basketball and they're obviously on social media, somehow that cut through is not happening. Their, their social media feeds are actually filtering out the information that they actually want to be getting. So what's the catalyst for that? Anything that you could throw in on that one, Casey, or is it a little <laughs> bit mean, too? Yeah, I think it's there's definitely opportunities there. I think, it, again, it comes back to sort of understanding the audience and being really innovative in this digital space. And I know there are so many ideas there that will just come down to resourcing. Like, you know, the first sort of th- things that pop to mind with things like that is, you know, parents are usually – time poor they've got more than one kid they're probably involved in several sports and activities school and you know particularly at the moment trying to do that at home in lockdowns like props to all the parents out there I can't even imagine trying to do that and then also running their own lives you know I can't imagine too many parents who are perhaps not basketball fans and but their kids are playing basketball are going to go and actively watch to try and encourage their kids to do that so you know, you'd probably be wanting to get them some kind of, you know, mini highlights package that are more tailored to how they, that speaks to their kids and how they can connect to their kids through basketball rather than trying to push the sport onto them to be fans. Like there are different ways and nuanced ways that you can create that content and do that through the community basketball space and, and do that through community sports. That's not the league driving that, that it's sort of from that participation level, but to create all that stuff, yeah, you need resources, you need that intel, you need to do that market research. That all takes time and effort. So I think there's so many opportunities here to do that, but particularly in the basketball space in Australia and the women's basketball space, that resourcing piece is a really big one because I can imagine even at the elite level, there's probably one person running the social media accounts, the digital marketing, writing the stories and doing everything to try and reach every single fan like we've been talking about is going to take so much more work than that. So I think you're right in thinking about all those type of fans and and having those experiences and seeing those opportunities can be really frustrating because you know the power of if something was there to engage all these people, what basketball could be. But knowing the reasons why it's not there is also frustrating because you just want, like, let's get some more investment there. Why isn't anyone seeing this potential that we have in these spaces? So it's kind of like we've hit, like, a little bit of a wall. So it just needs someone to come in and really like, pull those levers to, to action that. And I think there's a lot of, of very, you know, small interactions that are required within that to get more people interested. You know, you probably need your local coach like Squid here to go and tell people, oh, hey, sign up you don't follow that we'll follow this follow this person but then you're going to also have parents who are going to look at say a feed for an athlete who models swimwear or or is doing you know more controversial or more adult level things within their social media and then you're going to have parents who aren't going to want their kids following that account so you know there's some real there's a lot of technicalities and small things i know from my own anecdotal evidence that you know when i tried to get my nephew to 
watch some NBA on free-to-air TV. I was like, oh, you can watch this on this. Oh, yeah, I might. But, you know, I might be playing a video game or something. I think it's it's just kids are hard. Kids are really difficult to, <laughs> to get. You know, you, you just picture yourself at that age, but you're not them, you know. So yeah. there's a whole lot of areas. But the point about resourcing is an enormous one. There's just all the clubs I deal with, so many of them have either a volunteer or a person who works across social and marketing and some other operations things that eat through, you know, 10 hours of work a day. So it is a really hard thing. And um, you just have to keep doing incrementally, keep using, have the right accounts, keep pushing them, keep telling the people at ground level, club level to push national accounts and things in the hope that, you know, you build up and reach, eventually reach that person you're trying to get into the, through the door. Yeah. And I hope to know in those spaces too where we're in this sort of difficult time with resourcing and I can only imagine that COVID is going to further put pressure on resourcing and, and what clubs and leagues are able to do. But I think looking at what the social media space has been able to produce in terms of the, you know, alternative media spaces and more content producers who are doing it outside of mainstream media and doing it for the love of the game there are opportunities there for for clubs and the league to connect in to those people who are doing that work you know work like you guys are doing with this podcast to sort of make use of what is there and try and have some more partnerships and collaborations in that space so I think there is stuff that can be done that sort of you know every everyone sort of pitches in together and much work is made lighter by many hands and those kind of analogies by those people who are already in the space and hugely invested. So I think, you know, there's potential there if we all sort of tap each other on the shoulder and, and help each other out a bit more. And if the clubs and, and leagues sort of realise that that's what's happening. And I think there is a bit of a fear sometimes from main sort of sporting bodies and, and state sporting organisations that they look at alternative media as a bit of you know, they're not the mainstream media and, you know, that might be a bit harmful because they're super fans and they might get a bit crazed and things like that. And I can understand that fear, but I think most of the time they are people who are heavily invested. They're volunteers at their local sporting organisations. They just want to get involved and they want to pitch in because they love the sport. So I think if we turn our attention to, to that space a little bit more and use social media that way, rather by let's all just try and pump out the same stuff and, and reach the same audience, if we all connect in a bit better and try and do things a bit more strategically together, that might be some sort of opportunity um, that we have in the meantime while hopefully the league gets a few more million dollars invested in it in the next few years, fingers crossed. That would be great if they did. Now, Roy, <laughs> you mentioned a point. And I know it's something that Jacinta's raised before about how some players utilise their social media. So, Jacinta, I'm going to hand this one over to you and maybe yes. you want to kick off this side of the, the conversation. Yeah, I'm glad that you were also picking up what Roy was putting down because Paul and I have talked before. I guess another double-edged sword, I, like for me, when I look at female athletes I follow and social media, but also a lot of the long-standing connotations of being a female in a particular space, like female athletes, for example, who use a lot of their social media to promote their sponsorships and, and brand sponsorships, like we mentioned before, but sometimes those brand sponsorships can be a lingerie company. Um, so when a lot of the social media posts from particular athletes are them in a bikini by the pool, them in lingerie on the bed. And for me, as a grown woman, I can see that and filter it and say, you know what, 
that's great. If that's what your brand is and that's another facet to you and your personality and what you're passionate about and you want to promote body positivity and feminism and things like that, I can see that and that's fine and I support it. That's great. But, you know, as a female athlete on a world stage, I also feel like it does come with some responsibility that you have, we don't have to, but you have to be aware that you need to model a certain type of behaviour or a certain way of of being that's going to be safe for your um, younger audiences and fans to be able to follow you and still understand that the message that you're trying to get across. So I'm not confident that some of the female athletes who choose to um, endorse their lingerie brands and things like that, I just worry that the younger fans aren't going to be able to decipher what that picture can mean and take a whole different and potentially negative meaning from it. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, Squint. I suppose I've always taken the old Charles Barkley argument that I'm not a role model. You know, your mum and dad are your role models, not the athlete. I do think there's a good argument for higher profile athletes to maybe have two accounts, have their G account and their adult account. But again, maybe it depends on the athlete and how they want to go about it as well. And there's a whole lot of different ways that people do, you know, something, particularly something so visual like Instagram. But um, you're only a certain age and a certain sort of muscle tone for so long in life. So I always say, go get that money while you can get it. And I think there is going to be an ability to attract some different audiences through some of those brand connections, whether it's with, you know, your sports apparel, your your lingerie, your evening wear, whatever. And I think the WNBA is doing some wonderful stuff at the moment with the pregame photos they do with the players walking in. Yeah. And, you know, they can, they treat it like the, like a fashion runway. Glad it's not me because it'll just be a different version of shorts each time. But I think, you know, these sort of things are great ways to generalize and bring in more audience and some of the kids as well and some of the some of the people who may only be interested in fashion. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of good things to do there. I think limiting it can always be a concern. And it's up to parents to explain to kids and hopefully have the relationship in that time of life with their kids to be able to talk openly. Or I think there's got to be open conversation to hope that parents and kids have those kind of connections. Yeah, absolutely. I would completely echo that. I think I don't want to get to a point where we try to constrict or put any sort of policing on how athletes choose to to use their bodies um, whether it's on the court or or off the court in their own ways in their own commercial endeavors or how they present themselves to their public and how they want to be seen and that can be so complicated just you know women's bodies racialized bodies um, any sort of control has so many connotations that we just don't want to go down that path I think it's so important to have conversations that are really open with you know kids who are starting to get on social media about what they're going to see and I think parents play a huge role in that you know we shouldn't be sort of shaming um, women who choose to to show their bodies in certain ways it just comes down to those nuanced conversations with your children about what that means and you know what you are able to do when you are mature and you have agency and you want to take control of your platform and you have opportunities I think having conversations with kids like that like I mean I'm not a parent so I want to preface that because I don't 
have to at the moment sit down and maybe have some of those awkward conversations and try and find the right words. So I, I know it's quite easy for me to say that at the moment. I can't imagine those conversations, uh, you know, easy around the dinner chats. But I also don't think that we need to sort of keep hiding kids away from those type of conversations because it does build up so much shame and you know, different levels of, you know, poor confidence about their own bodies and their own body image that can lead to some really toxic stuff later on. So you know, obviously there's some caveats you need to have around, you know, depending on the age of your children. But I think starting to introduce those type of conversations into everyday chats when you see, you know, bodies presented in different ways can only lead to more body positivity and empowerment and confidence going forward. So I don't see too much of an issue with that at the moment. Can I quickly add something on the on the back of that? The thing that's much more damaging for an athlete, both commercially and frankly for any of us getting online, is spreading misinformation. Whether it's on an on a social issue, on a on an issue of personal preference, or on a cause that you know is viewed dimly in in section society, that thing is something that's far more dangerous. And has to be far more the athlete and the person in general has to be so much so much more careful what they spread or what they talk about and how they present themselves. I think the commercial elements, at least that's often been through a whole bunch of eyeballs before it sees anything in public. It's the unedited stuff that is going to get you in a lot more lot more strife in places you don't want to be. So saying that, can I quickly ask, what do you feel is more powerful on social media? Do you feel like it's the posts about positivity and support and achievements and celebration um, versus, you know, a, a very cool but... Um, I could always also see the other side when the AFLW recently replied to a male comment about how no one wants to watch it and the AFLW rightly replied, well, we've got 5 million viewers and we sold out all these shows and made a sarcastic comment about, yeah, I guess we won't want to watch it then. But to me, I thought that was great. But I also know that also being a woman uh, in any space, there's always the risk of when you're assertive and when you hold someone accountable that you're going to be more vulnerable for probably more abuse online and more attack. So what's everyone's take on the positivity but also being super positive online and having celebrations is that still reinforcing that connotation that women need to be upbeat and positive and, you know, friendly and nice all the time. But then also there's the advantage of keeping people safely accountable but then is that the negative connotation of, uh, a woman's always nagging and a woman's always got, you know, some kind of issue with men. Again, another double-edged sword for you to, <laughs> to um, have a crack at. I mean, I think there's a place for both and there's a few things to unpack there, um, particularly with imagery. I know, you know, the research tells us that the more visible that women are, you know, the more more normalised, you know, women doing, you know, whether it's sport or you know, being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, like just visibility is so important. And it's, you know, changing from just the the posed images of women wearing a sporting outfit to being in the action, you know, getting tackled, going up for a hard layup, getting the hard ball get, all of that sort of stuff is really, you know, positive to see out there. But I think you're right. That kind of response from an official women's sporting league to a you know, quote-unquote troll, I think is so much more powerful. And it goes back to what I was saying before about connecting with your fans who are there. That kind of response from an official sporting organisation or club to someone who is attacking their core product and their athletes 
and their fans validates to the fans that are there that they are worthy, that what they're already investing in is they believe in themselves as an organisation and they believe in their fans. And I think what you said there is so right in that that sense of vulnerability and not wanting to complain is the reason why we haven't seen that really done a lot before because sporting organisations and leagues who have adopted, you know, women's leagues have been so worried about the fragility of them, about people, you know, criticising them and, and taking them down that they haven't really wanted to do anything about it because they're afraid of losing any fan because there's so few there. But what we're seeing that that doesn't work. The fans who are I'm not going to say fans, the trolls, quote unquote trolls, who are making those comments, they are never going to be fans. You are not going to win them over. Do not worry about them. So call them out. Tell them to go away because we've got to flip that thought process of we're going to win over everyone. You don't need to win over everyone. You need to win over the people that matter and the people who are going to drive your sport forward and be advocates for you. And by calling out that poor behaviour online, you do that by validating the rest of your fan base who are going to go out there and champion your sport and champion your athletes because they believe in what you're doing and how your behaviour online. So, yes, the images of women celebrating and you know doing these amazing sporting achievements is really positive to start to frame women in a different way than just the petite, you know, young women with beautiful bodies. But that, you know, call to action from the leagues actually getting in the comment section and taking those stands is so, so important about how we move forward. Yeah, spot on. And it's also, to me, it's about if you believe in it, you need to get behind it. And if you want people to, you know, more people to have the positive view of a game and a league and a competition, you got to get in and back yourself and defend yourself. And But my thing I always encourage any sporting organisation to do, get good photos, get good videos, get the highest quality of content that you can get that shows how wonderful these athletes, these people are. And when you've got a great image, when you've got a couple of players hugging after the game who turn out to be workmates off the field or best mates, spread the word. You know, put that out there and show people the realness of these athletes and how good they are. And if you're going to be positive, be the best positive you can be. If you're going to be cutting, cut really hard, go for the throat. You know, really, really rip in because if nothing else, people follow passion. Sports fans go with the passion. The boring guy is not going to get the interest, you know. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting point because do you think that a lot of, you know, quote unquote trolls are doing what they're doing, not so much because they're really interested in in trying to cut down whatever it is they're responding to, that they're really doing it to try and either build their own profile or validate their own opinion by just getting it out there? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, where I sit on those people is it just comes down to power and, you know, I know this gets into a bit of a dangerous territory because it's it's not all men. I know this. I know they're very good men. We've got very good men on this conversation who are you know wonderful allies of women in sport. But you know the men who do this are you know usually I think very have very complicated relationships with their own masculinity and what it means to be a man, and they want to get that sort of power and, and agitate and and feel that they are you know, above certain things and put other things down and they get that power and that sort of rush from doing that. And 
being able to be somewhat anonymous online, I think is really helpful for that. It protects them a little bit so they don't get called out. I know there are some people who do this online to get their 15 minutes of fame and they think it's funny when athletes screen grab their message and reshare it to call them out. And they're usually doing it from a, you know, a different account that's not really theirs. And they try and get a reaction out of people. But I don't think a lot of people do it specifically for that reason. I think they do it because they don't realize the impact that it actually has. It's still that kind of off the hand comment that they would make at the pub with their mates and they don't realize how visible it is. But it's so symptomatic of what the rest of society still is, those comment sections. Um, It's just in a digital way. So I just think it is reflective of a broader issue that we still have when it comes to to sexism in society. I had, um, so during the Olympics, I was in a group chat with about eight different guys. And initially the chat was created to follow the boomers through Olympics. And then my friend who made the chat who is you know on the gender equality side then change it to boomers and opals and when the boomers won their bronze medal one of my friends said oh I can't believe we've got an Olympic medal in basketball and I just I just put the asterisk (laughs) I just put the asterisk and said men's basketball and he's like oh so sorry ma'am and I was like what do the opals have to do as one of the most successful Australian women's sporting team for you to recognize we already have medals in basketball at the Olympics. And it's just that slight change of language that can make such a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah, so, sorry, Roy, go on. I was going to say, no, I heard plenty of that. And I've got to say, I think I was probably feeling at times, should I be writing in here just to make sure people haven't forgotten that we've got, you know, four or five medals already before now? It was a hard one because the rusted on people know but so and on the on these major events where you're drawing in so many new fans, there is probably an element that gets lost that they wouldn't remember or wouldn't have even acknowledged that. I will just say that as a man, I get so angry with so many of these little boys and damn fools who write these comments carelessly. You know, I always say to anyone who will listen, if you can't say that to someone's face, don't say it online. If you would say that and your mum would look at it and say, why are you writing that? Don't write it. But I think sadly too many people are just, as as Casey said, careless or don't think on the implications or just don't care. And, you know, the thing I do now is try and give as little oxygen as I can, considering I'm not a sporting Mm -hmm. body or an athlete. You know, just don't amplify any of these idiots beyond, you know, what's reasonable. I think what concerns me in terms of the whole trolling culture is that sometimes when people who are journalists per se, um, there's one Australia media outlet that focuses on basketball. A lot of their tweets I found, especially over the, probably more so over the Olympics, I was paying more attention to Twitter than I was previously. Their tweets were particularly and almost purposefully divisive, making a lot of extreme comments about particularly the Opal squad. They shouldn't pick this person. This person's no good this coach is no good, sack this person. I mean, that already made me irate because he's someone that a lot of Australian basketball fans are looking up to for resources and information. And his attitude and his um, presentation is so divisive, then to me, that's going to create a domino effect of, okay, well, if he's behaving this way, then me as the guy on the couch who's never played a game of basketball before are going to see that and think it's okay to behave in the same way. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting one there when we get to in-game criticism or team criticism. And it's also a space, uh, you might remember before Casey spoke about how teams and clubs are a bit concerned about alternate media and media that's outside of the of mainstream. It's for that sort of reason because you have some real sort of outside-the-box opinions at times. I think you've always got to, when you're trying to be a top-line sport, when you are a top-line sport, when you're aspiring, that you've got to take the criticism, even the really horrible stuff, unless it's personal or abusive. You know, if it's this coach is no good, they shouldn't have picked her, you sort of got to wear it. But if it's the one where you start getting personal, start getting, you know, abusive, then that's where you've got to draw lines. But it's actually, in a way, it's a good thing if a team can bring out strong views from people following as long as it's not over the top. I think you want views, you want people engaging with it with a level of passion. If they weren't talking about it, then you're saying it might not be interesting. But I think you've got to have, you know, it's a hard line to draw though because sometimes you've got people who are just full on about one view all the time and it can be really, you know, a bit of a downer. Again, they're the ones I mute or put on the background myself. (laughs) Yeah, and they tend to come out a lot on the big events. So Armchair experts. Yeah, I mean, just before the Olympics started, I saw somebody post um, on one of the social media platforms, now I get to be an expert in all the sports I know nothing about. (laughs) (laughs) And and, I mean, I'm pretty sure that we all saw instances where you'd read commentary about a particular sport and you're kind of like, what? Where's this coming from? (laughs) Where's the relationship to reality to this? But we're getting into some of the areas where there's a lot of negativity in social media. Some of it is really atrocious, and and I agree with you, Roy. You just stick them on mute or you just dump them all together. You don't want to see them in your timeline. But there's a lot of stuff that kind of does fall in that middle ground, and I agree with you. You do want to see that passion because it means if there's passion from the individual, they've got a level of interest, and you've got to see how that's going to develop. But how do you manage that? when, you know, it's got the potential to tip over into that area where it's just like, this is not good. We don't want to be seeing this. It's it's such a hard point, particularly because in the sports media right now, the non-athletic personalities who are getting the most traction and the most support are the Stephen A. Smith out there, loud, opinionated types who will turn every molehill into a mountain. And those guys and girls... There's less girls, sadly, but, you know, the ones who really get out there and pump up those agendas and those issues are the ones who are getting the most eyeballs because it it draws in the non-committed fan. Oh, wow, there's controversy. Oh, look, someone's fighting, you know, and it's you see it, the scale of clicks on a story that has a negative connotation or has a controversial combative connotation always goes much higher than, you know, the the regular story or the plainer story. So it's really hard because... Any young journalist who's coming up and trying to build a following, they'll look at that and say, well, this is where I've got to go. You know, this is where I've, or commentator, this is where I've got to go. I've got to be edgy. But that level of am I informed edgy and am I engaging edgy or am I ignorant edgy? I think that's something people don't ask themselves. They just go for edgy and, you know, let's see what part of the dartboard I hit. Yeah, it's almost like they're taking a page out of the Alan Jones playbook. Oh, classic, exactly. I do think there's a there's a counter to that too, but it comes down to how we sort of measure or how we redefine what we value in media and engagement. And I think we, and when I say we, we're kind of sort of, I think I mean broader media, but probably beyond that in terms of like media consumption as well. 
you know, the clicks, the likes, the views, the eyeballs are still the key metrics that we kind of use to measure the power of something. But when we really drill down to it, you know, those kind of like armchair fans or those voyeurs who see a lot of numbers, who click on something to see what's going on, they're not really your core fans. They're going to come in and go and sort of look at a story and say, well, there's some hot takes over here I'm going to have a look at because everyone's looking at it and I want to be able to be part of the conversation because I don't want to be left out at the water cooler at work or something if someone's talking about this. But that's not the type of content that wins over core fandom. Where you see a lot of power is, you know, sort of keep bringing it back to this alternative media space. And this is where I see a real positive of social media in bringing together a lot of these sort of freelance journalists or or blog writers or content creators who are doing this kind of stuff and not even people who are creating stuff, just fans who are connecting with people who are in the space, who go to games and meet up with each other, who create this sort of fandom space online, which is highly engaged with different types of content and is winning over fans and is winning over people who connect with the sports. And I think that's a different way that we should be thinking about how you engage fans and how you measure the value of something because connecting with someone in that fan space and drawing them in and making them feel included and having that back and forth banter with them and you know I think a really powerful example of this is the netball community on Twitter who you know hashtag netty Twitter and everyone is in this fan community together and they bond and bring people in and they live tweet games together and they watch that might be such a small group of people in terms to how you can measure eyeballs and you know thousands of likes and a tweet but once you're in that space and you feel welcome and included you're going to connect with that league and a team and those people and be part of a fan community and more highly engaged for life so I think there's a way that social media and the fan space and the women in sport community really thrives there in a much different way than what we would have traditionally valued. So I think there's some ways that we can pivot our ways of thinking about how to capitalise on that space rather than just looking at someone's tweet that's got 100,000 likes and thinking that that's really powerful. It's not really that powerful. That's a great point. There's actually one of those netball Twitter uh, accounts, um, Emmy, I can't remember Mm -hmm. her last name, she started yeah. doing these yeah. TikToks with netball and they were super netball specific. Like, what, how do I know I'm a goal attack and I'm not a center or, or why this player's <laughs> left, how I miss her. Like, I think when Caitlin Bassett went over to New Zealand, she had like all these mm-hmm. and they were hilarious. The players got into them too. Like, and it was purely fan made someone who was out just making them because she loves netball. That was a wonderful example of. A very, very obscure example, but a wonderful example of exactly that, how you can draw in other supporters to that hardcore area of following. Absolutely. Like, I think, um, you know, since she started creating those TikToks, like, she got an extra, like, probably 1,500 followers. And that's a huge amount in, Mm. like, that kind of level of content creation. But that seems so insignificant when you talk about like a mainstream media publication who might have your know, 250,000 followers or someone's personal account that has 20,000 followers. But the level of engagement that she has one-on-one with the people in her space who she's connected with and 
she is such an ambassador for Super Netball. So, you know, when um, the the Super Netball Grand Final on the weekend was scheduled at the same time as an AFL final with essentially the same team. So the New South Wales Swifts and the Giants are playing in the Super Netball and then Sydney and GWS are playing in the AFL final. Giants, obviously part of the same club, have a football and netball club. And then Sydney have a huge relationship with the New South Wales Swifts. She was using her TikTok platform to try and convince people about the you know, disparity between women's sport, what it means to have eyeballs on the screen. Please try and tune into the Super Netball Grand Final before you switch over to, to watch the footy or watch it on delay. It's not going to go that much longer um, if you know what it means. And she might have reached like maybe even a dozen people to make that decision. But if you think the power that one person making TikToks has to change the minds and hearts of sports fans, like that's where you should be investing. <laughs> um, you shouldn't be worrying about trying to put an ad that might reach like 100,000 eyeballs but not really I don't know, change anyone's mind. That direct to other fans type of fan-to-fan content creation and engagement there's the power to do so much to really elevate women's sports and i think is a really wonderful example of what is happening in that social media space it was powerful enough that it made the afl explain why they were playing and they were saying they couldn't actually (laughs) play on the sunday because they had to get tv gear someone couldn't have a five-day turnaround that was the Mm. they actually gave a public explanation which i don't know you would have ever seen why you're going head-to-head with netball publicly explained by the massive AFL, but they saw the level of passion. So there is, there's some strength there. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a latent interest. There's obviously a latent level of passion amongst the fan base. How do you build that up? How do we inform teams and the league? This is what you got to be trying to do, because I always feel as though you're almost running into this brick wall of marketing experts who know better. Yeah, it's a big challenge. And I think it's it's trying to pivot the way that I think sporting clubs and, and leagues and organisations view fans, really. Because I think a lot of you know elite teams will say they love their fans and they're nothing without the fans, but really do view their fans with a lot of disdain and look at them as dollar signs, really. Like they'll buy a membership, and, but they're just a nuffy fan. They're not going to really value their opinion. Um, and I'm probably speaking more from maybe more men's sports. I think women's sports is a bit different in this space. But that kind of treatment of fans, I think, has been kind of the norm for a while. I think particularly in spaces like like the AFL and NRL, which are super commercialised and getting bigger and bigger and have such big growth targets and they put their memberships up every year and just and know that their fans are going to pay it because what else are they going to do? They love their team. They love the game. That kind of looking at fans of just consumers and that they're loyal and will go nowhere so you can kind of do whatever you want that kind of approach I think is starting to hit a real wall with fans and I think social media has a lot to do with that like fans starting to find their own voice and uh, give their frustration some airtime and and realize that they can sort of have a bit more power in their fandom which I think is really positive but I think that attitude is still there like you're saying like there are you know people in marketing roles who think that they they know everything and I'm sure they're really smart people and have, you know, the expertise and the degrees behind them and are really creative but don't want to listen to what fans have to say because some fans may not have a marketing degree or, or they don't really know what the commercial space looks like but they know what their fandom looks like. They know how they connect with the sport. They know what it means to them. That's still really valuable and really important. So I think changing that attitude to how you think about 
what a fan gives your sport and what a fan actually does. Like fans are not passive. They don't sit there just paying their membership and doing nothing. They are active. Like fandom is active. You are doing something. So I think if we try and encourage some sporting teams and leagues to think about fandom differently, then that can potentially change. But I think I haven't really seen that happen too much. I'm only starting to see it a lot. I see a lot more in the women's sports space because I think women's sporting leagues know how much they need to value their fans because there's not as many of them, unfortunately. So I do hope that when, because I say when, not if, women's sports gets more and more fans and more of an audience, that that doesn't change, become over-commercialised, like we say with some of the bigger men's sports. But I think that's a really productive conversation to have um, is changing what a fan is and what it means to your organisation. I think there's some real good points there. I would also add that so often at a, at a level like the WNBL, you'll have either younger staff members or less experienced staff members in marketing roles. They'll be using this as their first job or their second job. And they'll only be in it for a couple of years. So you've got the same young person doing the job and then moving on and learning the same lessons over and over again. So it's often why I think you're going to see history get repeated too often. Or why are they doing this again in their advertising? Why is their membership package not... It's because the new person's come in and they only know what they know. So it's really, it's about clubs having good institutional memory and having, you know, people involved at board level and ownership level and things who can pass on these matters. I also say it's really about zeroing in on the things you can control. So what comes up under Google for your best couple of players? You know, is your club profile one of the ones higher up? When they load on your website, you know, when when I see Rebecca Allen hit six threes from my WNBL side and I Google Rebecca Allen, do I get her name? Do I get her accounts? When I go to my, the club website, do I get her Instagram? Do I get those connections that I can build that, you know, bond with that player? I think there's got to be all those sort of set pieces they've got to really nail down. And I think also just when you've got good things, good highlights, good moments, good interactions, make sure you've got it on video or on on camera out to share to people so they can get and get their bit of enjoyment from that. Because, you know, some of the best interactions I've seen between fans and players have been at WNBL level because you're in the same tiny gym, you're near, you're at courtside with them, you're talking to them after the game. There's that real closeness that you can have that you can't really have anywhere else in sport. And fostering that and building that and encouraging that you know is paramount to to building those fans beyond a couple of games that is such a good point Roy when you talk about the you know the makeup of who is actually behind those roles and I think that's really true in the social media roles as well at a lot of clubs where it's you know you give the Twitter account or the Instagram to to the young person who understands it and gets it and can um you know can do it which I think is really great because you know a lot of these younger, you know, marketing graduates coming through probably do know how to do TikTok more than the senior marketing executive that's been there for 10 years. But I think that gives such a devaluing sense to those platforms and, you know, what they mean. Like they should be so much more prioritised in terms of overall marketing strategy and engagement strategy that senior levels should be looking after and understand the value of and give more um, oversight to because I think we see examples of this and I mean, I can't pretend to know who the person was who posted um, and then took down the Taylor Harris photo on the channel seven AFL page that caused a lot of um, 
controversy a few years ago, but I can only imagine that that was someone in quite a junior position managing the social media account, put up a photo, got a huge amount of backlash, panicked, deleted the photo, and then got so much more backlash because that was, you know, a social media role um, after hours after a game, just putting up photos and scores from um, the weekend's matches, I can imagine was seen as such a, you know, low priority space, whereas that should have been much more looked at and much more support should be given to anyone who's coming in a junior level in a marketing role or social media role or comms role to look at, you know, the nuances of how you're looking at women online and the language that you use and how they're framed. Like that's a highly visible, highly important role that I think you're right is sometimes sort of looked down a little bit as an easy way to get someone in to do a job really quickly that could be easily done from someone at that level. But, yeah, I think that needs to be flipped quite a bit because, you know, if we're going sort of looking at that sort of space sense that I uh, talked about at the start, social media is your front of business now. Um, Your website is your front of house. Like anything you're doing digital and in a comm space is the first thing that people see, like Roy was saying, when you Google, that's so, so important. So you need to think of it not so much as this is a quick and easy way to do things and, you know, the other stuff is more important. This is one of the most important things that your sporting team as a business can do is show who you are as soon as someone clicks on a link or looks at your Twitter page or your Instagram page. And those opals and the boomers, to me, are the the perfect example that's the forefront of my mind, especially after this recent Olympics campaign, because the boomers have obviously invested in their social media in the last six months, probably since they started boomers camps and all the way through the campaign. I know that they had their own photographer on site through the whole journey that was documenting stuff in still photography and and a couple of videos. And also a lot of the nuances of when they had their warm-up tops for the trial games, they had a specific Aboriginal print on the back. There was a lot of like footage of what their training camp would look like, the men interacting with each other um, and what they were doing off the court to build that boomers culture, which we know as as basketball fans and now hopefully the rest of Australia also know is such an integral part of the boomer success and history. And if it wasn't for them assigning someone purely to do their social media and to have those images and that insight into what the camp and the lifestyle was like, I don't think that story would have been shown. Um, And then you get the Opal's social media where every second day um, people are reposting and tagging and talking about the Opals on every platform and there's not even like a retweet or um, a liked post or maybe a share on an Instagram story. And we only really got insight into the Opal's journey and what the team was like and what Tokyo was like for them through the personal channels of each Opal's player. I think from memory, the Opals had an issue. They were trying to get a local person into their camp to do the photography, whereas the Boomers have had a guy, Matt Adek-Ponja, who does some wonderful stuff. And he's been involved. I think the Players Association and BA got together to bring him in at the behest of the players because he does such wonderful stuff. You know what's awesome, though? Matisse Tybel's internal videos were actually the best thing of the whole... <laughs> of the whole campaign and I think he still must be hoping he's still making some more of the rest of the campaign and that's a guy doing that making his own channel from inside you know who's right at some of the stuff he showed 
I imagine no uh, social media person would ever get permission to show some of the video that he got to put online because he's in there with the group, one of the guys. So that was really telling. Mind you, I do think it was funny. I think one of the Opals at one point, they, there were some very funny, silly videos of them getting through quarantine that I had a good laugh at as well. Kayla yeah. Jordan comes to mind. <laughs> Anything Kayla George related is going to be funny because she was even featured in one of Matisse's videos of putting on this this gold silicon face mask as they were coming into land to Tokyo. Um, <laughs> just those little insights is like makes those experiences for fans a lot more special, I, I feel. And with Matisse's videos, um, he just kind of really showed that human side of being a world-class athlete. He's late to training. He doesn't wear shoes. He didn't brush his teeth like three times where he's like, oh, my God, I'm late for training. Oh, my God, I haven't brushed my teeth. Like (laughs) that's the stuff I want to hold on to, you know, that really shapes him as a person outside of, yeah, being an athlete. And that's that's exactly the sort of material that really would tend to freak out the typical marketing gatekeeper. In their own mind, there's a total disconnect between trying to present this very polished product compared to having some guy saying, oh, crap, I forgot to brush my teeth, but I'm late for practice, I better go. It, it's, it just doesn't, doesn't quite fit in with their model. But adding to that, I think also one of the issues that I've seen starting to develop with some of the smaller sports is that belief that they need to engage with big media. There's some sports have been saying, oh, well, you know, if you're not a accredited journalist with one of the majors, we don't want you. Don't even bother trying to attempt to get uh, media access. We just we're just not interested, which also tends to to add to that that disconnect between the sport and their fan base. Yeah, that's a big challenge. That's something that um that I face. I mean, I've not ever been a journalist. I wouldn't claim that I'm a journalist. <laughs> I'm a writer who has fallen in love with sport and became an academic and has just been able to you know, have some amazing opportunities to, to cover some sport along the way. Um, and I've been able to do that with some outlets and then just felt really passionate about creating more. So created my own outlet with Siren Sport with some of my other freelance sports writers who were out there. And, you know, we are an alternative media platform. Um, we're not part of that mainstream media landscape. So we have had some like issues with uh, sports not wanting um, us to cover them or, or not providing athletes for us to interview, which I think like we've sort of understand that. Like we know we need to prove ourselves a little bit in that space and, and build a reputation. Um, so that can be understandable sometimes. But then I think at the same time, we have proven ourselves a little bit with what we've been able to do. And, and individually, um, my Siren Sport co-founders are all really well accomplished and, and well established in the sports that they've covered and, and what they've been able to do. So it does get a little bit frustrating when um, you are gatekept out of certain sports. Some sports have really welcomed us in and mm. are really great at connecting with their, I guess, their sort of alternative media counterparts that are out there doing the work and know that that's really valuable for them. So we've got some great relationships with some sports that put up their athletes for us that sort of work collaboratively with us. And um, I think we've really earned their trust by covering their athletes in a really thoughtful and caring way um you know they realize that we're not out there to get you know any sort of gotcha moments or exploit them um or, or try and blow up the internet with you know a catchphrase or something that they've you know been caught unawares which some other outlets like to do 
And I can understand the hesitation from some sports when they do see those outlets doing that, like um, the outlet you were talking about before, Jacinta, that are sort of, you know, full of hot takes and really strong opinions. And I think Roy's right. Like, it's good to have them there because they're drawing attention to the sport, you know, if it's in the best way or not. I'm not sure if that matters too much as long as, you know, someone's talking about you um, and if they're not being too damaging um, or irresponsible with their platform. But, yeah, it's, it is an ongoing challenge to try and navigate that space as an alternative media um, platform. And I think part of our battle is just sort of constantly trying to prove ourselves that we're sort of not worthy of the time but that we're advocates of the sport and we only want the sport to grow and we only are coming from a good place of wanting to grow the visibility and sort of wanting to do it together. So I'm wondering if that might change in the next few years because the media space is changing so much and maybe it's just a bit too new at the moment for some sports to really get their heads around. But I do understand to a certain degree why some sports are really protective, um, particularly of their their female athletes. Yeah, you see that a bit. I think um, something I've noticed, it depends so much on what level of media coordinator or media person a club has. Do they have someone who was a journalist? Do they have someone who's more a public relations person? And what mm. sort of feedback do they get? But I've always encouraged any types that will listen to me is judge the person on what work they're producing and what questions they're asking. Because sometimes you have people from smaller outlets who are hyper knowledgeable. I, I see it at Rugby Union. There's a couple of guys who come in from some of the websites, smaller websites, but their questions are often far more detailed than my questions are because they watch the game from a much more informed level. Whereas mine might be more about an injury or about, you know, an issue with form. Theirs will be, well, the breakdown on the third phase and the scrum didn't work out today. You know, there's things that are really technical. So you should have those voices in there. They, they make the discussion better as long as the people are, you know, engaging in that way. But as a Casey said, it is hard for smaller outlets to really prove themselves, whereas I've just got to show that I'm from the age or from the SMH or wherever, and people say, oh, well, come on in. It's always going to be an issue. But welcoming more voices, if they're productive voices, makes the conversation better and the coverage better, as far as I'm concerned. And I think one of the areas where this actually was really brought to the fourth, in the run-up to the Olympics and also during the Olympics, was the support that came out for the players, not only from, well, specifically for Simone Biles and also some of the attacks on Ben Simmons that were defended by Paddy Mills. It showed that a lot of a lot of individuals, a lot of people from these smaller social media-based media outlets and the smaller ones tended to have significant levels of support for the way those, those issues were being reported, whereas there were some outlets that really just took the opportunity to sink in the boot. And I think this is one of the areas where the smaller media outlets that really depend on social media tend to have an opportunity to differentiate themselves. And, and let me say, it's not all big media that got into that. There was one particular segment of, of big media that particularly with the Simone Biles and to the same extent with um, Naomi Osaka during the French Open, it was just an opportunity to, to have a go at, at the individual Whereas you had another sector of big media that was like, no, we're going to take a different approach. And a lot of the smaller media outlets and a lot of social media journalists, for want of a better term, tended to take a more uh, supportive approach. Do you think that that has an impact on how fans engage with the media that they're consuming in relation to sport? 
I sort of find it hard to judge. I think people come to those sort of issues, like the club versus country issues, the do I do media or do I not do media issues. People just immediately take a left brain, right brain sort of approach and they take a view on it and they just say, oh, this is what I believe or here's my two cents. I agree with this person. I agree with that person. And yep. you know, if you want to be irresponsible within and you have a larger platform, you can quite easily write something quite fierce in defense of one of those issues or on the attack and get a lot of clicks and get a lot of interest. But you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror after you've done it as well. And I think you've also got to look at things outside of just uh, this person said they're playing and they're not, or this person said they're going to make a lot of money from their sponsors but not do regular media. I think there's you've got to look beyond those, just the tiny bit of the issue and look at the issues of why these things happen and why people are doing what they do. But you're always going to have opportunists who see a chance to, hey, this is my this is my audience here. I can tell everyone what a big man or big woman I am here by smashing this person who's vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you can't, and human nature, rules of the jungle, all that sort of stuff, sadly, there's going to be people who gravitate towards that sort of aggression. Mm. And I think it comes back to that sort of, you know, wrestling for control and that competition and I think the the mainstream media outlets who really went hard at you know athletes like Naomi Osaka and even in instances where like one that comes to mind was um you know Heretia Lumumba where he wanted to tell his story um of experiencing racism in the AFL he made the conscious choice to only talk to journalists of color who would you know empathize and understand his story and be in a position to tell his story from a similar experience when Athletes take control of their story and their narrative and take the control away from, you know, other journalists or, or media outlets. I think those outlets who are being a bit more opportunistic or afraid of losing that control are the ones who are going to go in harder and be much more negative and sort of slam into those athletes a lot more um, and try and control that narrative back that they're doing the wrong thing, that they're obligated to do this and that you know, their outlet is being cut out of the process and doesn't have access to tell the story, which I think is a really counterproductive way of looking at it rather than trying to tell another story. You know, I don't know why so many journalists are so upset with Naomi Osaka not fronting a press conference where thousands of people are watching on the live stream. Every journalist is getting the same answer to the same question to run. It's the same story in their papers. There's no differential. You could have taken a much more innovative approach to that and investigate the you know what the press conference does how athletes have navigated press conferences what's happening with Osaka there are so many other ways that you can investigate that story by not slamming her for not fronting up to so you could write the story you wanted to write about her um so I think it all comes back to that control and when people feel like they're losing control or something's being taken away from them they react in ways that can be really negative and really damaging yeah but the advantage of having the social media access is that the athletes can then try and take a level of control of how they respond to those sorts of stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Osaka did that. Um, she used her platform, she used Instagram and took uh, snapshots of her notes to tell why. And, you know, she was still pretty much slammed for doing that though. So it was pretty negative space. She did get some support. But I think that's the space that we're in is – the difficulty between navigating what's news, what's journalism, what's stories and the value placed in all of them, I think is, you know, it's pretty murky right now because everyone can have a platform, everyone can have a voice. And I think there's 
lots of pros and cons to that because it adds more to the space. It gives more people more voices. It gives more diversity. It gives more creativity. Um, but it also gives a lot of, puts a lot of fear in people. It does add some negative voices to that space. And we sort of still try to differentiate what's real news because we know the power of, you know, the quote unquote fake news can really be damaging as well, but that's out there. So it is a messy space. It's got a lot of power for good, but it's also got a lot of complexities that I think right now we just don't understand how to navigate. And that's, you know, something that I couldn't even begin to try and solve (laughs) at the moment or even in my lifetime, I think. But I think, yeah, I just, from a women in sport point of view, which is my little tiny corner of the internet and social media space, I think it's doing some really great things. And I think there shouldn't be as much fear around harnessing those communities and those platforms and using that space for good. For the rest of the internet and the world in that space, I don't really know, couldn't tell you. (laughs) But I think that fear and and those complexities, they can be really like harnessed for good and really flipped around for good in the women in sports social media space because there is so much good stuff there. I couldn't agree more with Casey on on the, the strength of the spaces. My concern with the likes of the really high-end professional athletes, whether you're talking about an Osaka or a LeBron James or whoever, is their social media account is 20 times, 100 times stronger than my than the reach of any of my stories as a journalist. And if they want to start just broadcasting their own views from their own site, that's their choice. But are they giving the full picture or just the picture they want to bring across? And suddenly you're not really in a journalistic space, you're in a propaganda and marketing space. And that can be great if you're trying to sell shoes. It's not always great if you if you want to have stronger conversations. So it's a hard one. I can guarantee after Naomi Osaka plays a tennis match, there'd be 100 journalists or 50 journalists who'd want an interview. I think the whole point of having a press conference is so everyone gets at least a, a possible chance of expressing some questions. But when someone's in a vulnerable place, they shouldn't be in front of a camera. At least there should be you know, a bit of control there or a bit of wiggle room. Has someone who sat in the Australian Open press room at 12.30 or 12.45 in the morning waiting for someone to finish their post-game shower and get their head right? After a late night tennis match, I can understand too, but it's a yeah, it's it's a really it's a difficult it is a difficult space, and there has to be a bit more nuanced conversation beyond someone saying no, they're not doing something when everyone else agreed to it, and someone also being un- understood as being vulnerable. Mm. Okay, this has been a really great conversation, and there's like a ton more topics we could get into, and maybe what we should do is at another time, get together again to talk some more about the social media aspects of of women's sports. But I do want to thank you all for for joining us on the show today. Casey, Roy, I've learned a lot, and I think there's some really great points that have come out of this. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Been good fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think I've learned a lot too. Um, It's always great to chat women's basketball and women's sport and and social media, which is a big passion. But I think, like you said, there's so much we can talk about. Um, and I think, I don't know if I've given answers, but hopefully we've just, you know, allowed a space where people can ask more questions and think about things a bit differently and what the possibilities might be in this space. Yeah, you definitely have. 
Jacinta, as always, it's great having you here as my co-host. Thank you so much. And we'd really like to get you both back on the show again to talk about some other subjects as well. Thank you very much. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.